0: It is a pleasure to chair this hearing on freedom of expression under assault in Asia. I want to thank Senator Romney for his cooperation on this hearing and the great work we have done together over the past year on this subcommittee. I want to thank each of the witnesses for appearing today. I look forward to hearing your testimony. Around the world, freedom of expression, one of the underpinnings of democracy, is under attack. Uh, we've seen that countries throughout Asia Pacific region have become models for repression and censorship. In Cambodia, Burma, the Philippines, Hong Kong, and China, authoritarian leaders seek to cement their power at the expense of the people, relentlessly crushing dissent and silencing opposition. They have weaponized laws to bring those who speak out to heal, to inspire self-censorship, to sow fear and discord, often under the veneer of the legal system. We cannot protect democracy at home or abroad if we do not protect the right to nonviolent self expression and freedom of the press. Unfortunately, today the Asia Pacific region is leading the world in efforts to restrict freedom of expression. China, Burma, and Vietnam were among the top five worst jailers of journalists globally last year, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. In Cambodia, Hun Sen and his cronies. Continue to backslide into authoritarianism by using the COVID 19 pandemic as justification to crack down on journalists and opposition figures. Journalism can be a deadly business, even in democracies. Just 36 hours before Maria Ressa accepted her Nobel Peace Prize, one of her colleagues was shot and killed in the Philippines. And Maria has risked her own freedom to protect the universal bedrock principles of a free press and rule of law. Sarah Cook of Freedom House um, Stalwart has spent her career shining a light on abuses against these very freedoms. As Hong Kong authorities have wielded a new national security law to clamp down on political activity, grassroots activists like Joey Su are on the front lines of defending freedom for Hong Kongers. We need journalists, activists and ordinary citizens to continue to speak truth to power and to shine a light on government abuses from genocide in Burma and to Xinjiang to politically motivated detentions in the Philippines. The People's Republic of China has made its authoritarian campaign of repression a key export to other countries. In 2016, Xi Jinping told state media, quote, wherever the readers are, Wherever the viewers are, that is where propaganda reports must extend their tentacles. Those tentacles have permeated Taiwan, where PRC disinformation and media influence operations have increased in the past several years. Taiwan is the subject to more disinformation from Beijing and other governments than any other place in the world, including in the run-up. To Taiwan's 2020 presidential election. The PRC is spending billions to expand the global reach of its state-run media outlets, exporting its authoritarian model. This is why I worked with my colleagues to secure the single greatest increase in funding in Radio Free Asia's 25-year history in the Senate passed Innovation and Competition Act. Additionally, my Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, uh, which former chair of the subcommittee Cory Gardner and I championed together, authorized more than $1 billion over five years to support democracy, human rights, and the rule of law in the Indo-Pacific. But the United States must do more to push back against the authoritarian playbook of repression and hold up these values as a focal point of American foreign policy. I look forward to hearing the recommendations from the witnesses on how the United States can better support freedom of expression and push back against the assault that is underway in Asia. And we're going to be hearing from Senator Romney in just a bit. He's been delayed, but uh, he does believe this is just a very, very important hearing to to shine a spotlight on these human rights abuses. So joining us after arriving um, from the Philippines earlier this week is Ms. Maria Ressa. Ms. Ressa is a 2021 Nobel Peace Prize laureate, co-founder of the online news publication Rappler, and has worked as a journalist in Asia for more than three decades. Ms. Ressa received the Nobel Peace Prize along with Russian journalist Dmitry Uh, Moratov uh, for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression. Ms. Ressa is a fearless champion of freedom of expression and has used her voice to expose the abuses of the regime of President Duterte. Uh, We welcome you uh, Ms. Ressa and uh, and I would um, ask for you to begin your presentation and then I will introduce uh, the other uh, witnesses as you complete your testimony. So we welcome you and we congratulate you on your well-deserved victor- victory uh, of, the, uh, of the Nobel Peace Prize of 2021. You're just a beacon of, uh, of hope, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, the whole rest of the world really, really owes you a debt of gratitude. So whenever you feel comfortable, please begin.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Senator Markey. I, thank you for inviting me to speak today. I really would like to share only three points. First to tell you what we're living through as journalists, as human rights defenders in the Philippines. Second, how technology for profit has become an insidious tool for tyranny globally and what you can do. And finally, what we're doing to help safeguard our elections in exactly 40 days. This is, I call it an Avengers assemble moment in my nation's battle for facts. I've been a journalist for more than 36 years, so I'm old. Uh, In 2016, Rappler came under intense online attack because we exposed the brutal drug war and the propaganda machine that was attacking journalists, news organizations, human rights defenders, and opposition politicians. The weaponization of social media you referenced, well, we lived through it, but that was followed by lawfare. The weaponization of the law, twisting the law to target us. In 2018, the Philippine government tried to revoke Rappler's license to operate and while we continued to fight it legally within 4 months, we lost 49% of our advertising revenue. In less than 2 years, my government filed 10 arrest warrants against me in order to travel. And I am you know, you never realize how how wonderful that freedom to travel is until it's taken away. I have to ask permission from the courts. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. One of the times my travel was denied at the last minute was when my aging parents in Florida, both ill, had asked me to come because my mom was getting an operation. It was, I got a a no from the last court at the last minute. Shortly after the Nobel Peace Prize, Rappler has received 22 new complaints, potential new legal cases. Last Friday, we received eight in one day, eight subpoenas. We must be doing something right because not only did a sitting cabinet secretary sue seven news organizations, including Rappler, but another is a petition at the Supreme Court by the Solicitor General alleging ridiculous conspiracy theories against Rappler. I wish it was true, but it wasn't. No, I don't wish it was true. That's a joke. The majority of these other complaints are connected to President Duterte's pastor. His name is Apollo Kiboloi. He's wanted by the FBI. His company leading the attack against journalists and human rights activists. It was just awarded a television franchise. All told, I could go to jail for the rest of my life because I refuse to stop doing my job as a journalist, because Rappler holds the line and continues to protect the public sphere. But I'm lucky. Remember Senator Lila de Lima, a former Justice Secretary and head of the Commission on Human Rights? Last month, began her sixth year in prison. Amnesty International calls her a prisoner of conscience. Or young journalist Frenchie Mae Cumpio, who spent her last two birthdays in prison. Or my former colleague, Jess Malabanan, you referenced, he was killed by a bullet to his head. He worked on Reuters' drug war series that won a Pulitzer Prize. Or ABS-CBN, the largest broadcaster in the Philippines, a newsroom I headed for six years, which in 2020 lost its franchise to operate. The last time that happened was when Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law in 1972. For the people who defend us, our lawyers, there are costs. More lawyers than journalists have been killed under the Duterte administration. Hundreds of human rights activists are dead. And the numbers killed in our brutal drug war, you know this? From thousands to tens of thousands, who really knows? That is the first casualty in the Philippines' battle for facts. This brings us to my second point, how technology has degraded facts and broken our societies. Like the age of industrialization, there's a new economic model that has brought new harms, a model Shoshana Zuboff called surveillance capitalism. When our atomized personal experiences are collected by machine learning, organized by artificial intelligence, extracting our private lives for outsized corporate gain. Highly profitable micro-targeting operations are engineered to structurally undermine human will. It's a behavior modification system in which we are Pavlov's dogs experimented on in real time with disastrous consequences. This is happening to you, to all of us around the world. Engagement-based metrics of these American technology companies mean that the incentive structure of the algorithms, which is really just their opinion in code, implemented at a scale that we could never have imagined, is insidiously shaping our future by encouraging the worst of human behavior. It's also choosing what journalism survives. Studies have shown that lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts. And these next sentences I have said repeatedly for the last six years. Without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without trust, we have no shared reality, no rule of law, no democracy. Now these networks form a global nervous system of toxic sludge fueled by geopolitical power play. In 2018, after the Senate released the data, um, from the IRA, the GRU, we connected the information operations in the Philippines with Russian disinformation networks. In 2020, Facebook took down information operations from China that were then creating fake accounts for the U.S. presidential elections, but simultaneously in the Philippines. It was polishing the image of the Marcuses It was campaigning for China, campaigning for the daughter of President Duterte, and attacking me and Rappler these are multi-purpose networks in 2021 the us and the eu called out china and russia for covid-19 disinformation we are all connected Surveillance capitalism is where all our problems connect. Safety, privacy, antitrust, and content moderation. They're not separate issues. The platforms want you to debate content moderation down here, because if you're stuck down here, they can make more money. So we need to move further upstream to the algorithms, the operating system of this information ecosystem, the algorithms of amplification. And then we go further upstream to the root cause, surveillance capitalism. On Thursday, March 24th, last week, the European Union hammered out the last details of the Market Services Act to be followed by the Digital Services Act. It's the most comprehensive legislation to put guardrails around tech. But these will take time. Right now, I appeal to U.S. legislators to reform or revoke Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act because we at the front lines need immediate help. We cannot solve the global existential problems if we don't win the battle for facts. And we cannot have integrity of elections if we don't have integrity of facts. In exactly 40 days, the Philippines will vote in what is an existential moment for our democracy. The front runner for president is Ferdinand Marcos Jr., whose family was ousted by a people power revolt 36 years ago. He's back, partly because history was revised in plain view with networks of disinformation on American social media platforms, which we at Rappler exposed, and we released that data publicly. I've submitted to you and the members of this, the Senate in this hearing, the whole of society approach that we're trying to use to protect the facts. A four layer pyramid we call hashtag FactsFirstPH. I can answer any questions you may have about that. But since it's succeeding, we have these new legal challenges, and our news sites, there are 16 news groups cooperating together in this, we've come under expanded DDoS attacks that are meant to take us down. These exponential lies on social media are like DDoS attacks on our brains, attacking our biology, leaving journalists, human rights activists, opposition politicians, defenseless. The platforms and the autocrats that exploit them must be held accountable, and democratic governments must move faster. In that sense, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has galvanized action and is forcing solutions. For countries like the Philippines, please consider the Magnitsky sanctions. Democratic nations must stand together for democratic values. The solution is three-pronged and remains the core pillars of Rappler. Technology, journalism, community. First, put guardrails around tech, build better tech. Second, strengthen journalism and help fund independent news. Part of the reason I agreed to co-chair the International Fund for Public Interest Media. Third, build communities of action that stand by these democratic values. I could go to jail for the rest of my life, just because I'm a journalist. But what I do now will determine whether that will happen. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your help. Now, the action's up to you.
0: Thank you so much. And again, it's, it's just an honor to have you here before the committee, the, the risk that you've taken Uh, the sacrifice that you've made, but the leadership that you've provided, not just for the Philippines, but for the whole world, is absolutely immeasurable. So thank you. Um, Next, we're going to hear from Ms. Uh, Joey Su, who, again, is a student activist, a policy advisor at Hong Kong Watch, and advisor to the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. She participated actively in Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement by organizing local grassroots campaigns, and international advocacy for Hong Kong. Her focus is on human rights in Hong Kong, East Turkestan, Tibet, and other regions in China, and she writes on U.S.-China relations and Hong Kong politics. Uh, We welcome you, Ms. Su, whenever you are ready. Please begin.
2: Good afternoon, and thank you, Chairman Markey, and thank you, Maria and also Sarah, for their very outstanding work in defending human rights and also, most importantly, freedom of expression. So my name is Joey Siu. I'm the policy advisor to Hong Kong Watch. I was born in North Carolina and moved to Hong Kong when I was seven. I became an activist, and in September 2020, I was forced to flee Hong Kong to leave my family and friends and come back to the States under the risk of political persecution with the national security law implemented by the Chinese government in Hong Kong. From crackdowns on social movements in Hong Kong, Thailand, and Myanmar to the tightening control over Tibet and East Turkestan, We are seeing governments uh, resorting to every conceivable measures to limit the people's right to freedom of expression across Asia. Today, I will be highlighting the situations in Hong Kong, Tibet, and East Turkestan. In Hong Kong, protester Tong Yin Kip became the first person to be convicted under the national security law that came into effect in Hong Kong on July 1, 2020. He was sentenced to nine years in jail for inciting secession and terrorism under the national security law. In the verdicts passed down, it was made clear that the protest slogans on the banner he held, Liberate Hong Kong Revolution of Our Times, was weighed heavily in the, in the determining of his sentencing, meaning that expression of support to our pro democracy movement in Hong Kong is becoming considered criminal. British colonial laws and the widely criticized public order ordinance were also used against human rights defenders in Hong Kong, rallies and assemblies, including the city's annual June 4th Tiananmen Massacre commemoration events, were banned in Hong Kong. Organizers, including Albert Ho, Li Yan and also Chao Tong, they were arrested and convicted for participating in inciting an unauthorized assembly under the public order ordinance. COVID-19 restrictions were also manipulated by the Hong Kong government to repress activities that do not align with the Chinese Communist regime's political stances. As we people across the world stand in solidarity with Ukraine against Russia's invasion, we're seeing that people in Hong Kong participating in peaceful pro-Ukraine demonstrations being fined, being warned by the Hong Kong government for what they say are violation of relevant COVID rules. Free press is also quickly vanishing in Hong Kong. At least 18 journalists have been arrested since 2019, since our pro-democracy movement broke out, and 12 remain in jail while waiting for a trial, including our very uh, prominent, very leading pro-democracy figure, our media tycoon Jimmy Lai. And under mounting political pressure, almost all of these independent pro-democracy media outlets in Hong Kong are forcibly shut down. And fearing date back charges with the national security law, they have to delta previous articles and reportings as they cease operations. An increasing number of re- reporters and also journalists in Hong Kong are now forced to leave the city. Online expression and also internet access are also under tighter restrictions. Since May 2021, access to several pro-democracy websites were found blocked and our organization, Hong Kong Watches website is among one of them. Free expression is also seriously encroaching Tibet and East Turkestan. According to Freedom House, Freedom in the World 2020 report, 2022 report, Tibet was ranked again for the second year in the world, the least free country worldwide. It is one of the most restricted and strictly monitored regions across the globe, with heavy police presence and also surveillance. That has created an almost complete information blackout in Tibet. Last month, a popular young Tibetan singer, Tewan Norbu, self-immolated in front of the Potala Palace in Lhasa. The Chinese government very quickly took control over the scene and restricted information from being reported and circulated. It took Tibetans in exile and also other human rights organizations almost a month just to confirm the news that it really happened. Because Beijing does not allow any foreign media presence in Tibet, it is incredibly hard and time-consuming for people outside to obtain first-hand information. The escalating restrictions on freedom of expression, including censorship and also the cutting off of internet and mobile communications, makes it so impossible for the Tibetan people inside of the region. To relay information to the outside world or even to circulate news among themselves. The Chinese Communist regime's anti extremism policies in the Uyghur region is yet another example illustrating the horrific assault on freedom of expression. With all round surveillance systems in- installed across the region, Uyghurs cannot express their opinions, faith, or, free- or culture freely. At least 1.5 million Uyghurs were arrested for relevant reasons and are now detained in camps, experiencing political indoctrination, horrendous physical and sexual abuses with absolutely no room for free expression. As freedom of expression continues to be under assault across Asia, it is important that the United States continue to fulfill our obligations and demonstrate leadership in defending our shared beliefs and also values. First of all, it is so crucial that we offer necessary humanitarian relocation channels for all those who have well-founded fear of persecution, especially politically exposed journalists, activists, and protesters. Secondly, I believe that we should continue to enhance our support to our uh, existing government-funded media services, including, as uh, Chairman Markiev mentioned that, Radio Free Asia and Voice of America. I think it would also be considerable that we extend our support to media agencies proximate to the oppressed regions in Asia, in democratic countries like Taiwan and Japan, to, co- to ensure the continuous and timely coverage of development. Last but not least, beyond individual actions, it is also essential that we continue to work with like minded partners and to lead a multilateral alliance to defend free expression against encroachment from authoritarian regimes. Thank you.
0: Excellent, and uh, thank you for all of your great leadership as well. And we're joined now by uh, Senator Romney. And uh, I don't know if you would like to make an opening statement right now. I
3: I will ask that my uh, comments be uh, submitted to the record. I won't have to read them for this group. I'm so late, I apologize for being late, and you know what I was up to. Uh, And uh, uh, so I appreciate being able to hear from uh, those that are testifying today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Excellent, and I thank the Senator from Utah. And finally, we're going to hear from
0: Ms. Sarah Cook. Uh, She is Research Director for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan at Freedom House. Uh, At Freedom House, she directs the China Media Bulletin, a monthly digest in English and Chinese providing news and analysis on media freedom developments related to China. Her comments and writings have appeared on CNN, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy, and U.S. Congressional Executive Commission on China. So we welcome you, Ms. Cook, and whenever you are ready and and uh, interconnected to the committee, we welcome your remarks.
4: Excellent. Are you able to hear me? Okay. Yes, we can. Great. Thank you very much, Senator Markey, Senator Romney. Thank you very much for the opportunity to testify, and I do apologize that I'm unable to join you in person. Given the title of this hearing. It will not come as a surprise that the most notable trend related to freedom of expression in Asia is how much it is declining. Data from Freedom House shows the shrinking space is not limited to a small number of countries or only part of the region. It cuts across subregions and across different forms of expression, affecting press freedom, internet freedom, academic freedom, and religious freedom in both democracies and authoritarian regimes. Over the past five years, 12 out of 15 countries in Asia assessed in our Freedom on the Net report experienced declines in Internet freedom. Other notable trends are, one, the adoption and enforcement of new restrictive legislation, including in China, India, Myanmar, and as Maria mentioned, the Philippines. Two, severe legal penalties for online and offline expression, including prison terms of 15, 43 years, or even life imprisonment in Vietnam, Thailand, and China. And three, the disproportionate impact on ethnic and religious communities who are often more severely punished or censored than the country's broader population. In China, for example, alongside Uyghurs and Tibetans, inner Mongolians, Christians, and practitioners of Falun Gong often face greater censorship and harsher legal penalties than other citizens. So what is driving these declines? First, the COVID, 19 pandemic has played a vital road, role as governments across the democratic spectrum in Asia have resorted to excessive surveillance and used arrests to crack down on free speech during COVID. But COVID's only one factor. Other contributing factors will actually extend long beyond the pandemic. First, elections and other political leadership transitions tend to invite increased restrictions on speech, both online and offline. Second, locations that have faced the greatest declines in recent years had experienced mass protest movements pushing back against repression, which were then cracked down upon, including in Myanmar and Hong Kong. And third, more sophisticated and pervasive surveillance technologies facilitate identification and prosecution of political opponents and ordinary citizens who share disfavored information on various topics. So what has been the role of China in all? As the world's largest authoritarian regime and a major economic power, the Chinese Communist Party's ability to itself construct the world's most sophisticated and multi-layered apparatus of information control has demonstrated that such a project is possible and it's played a role in normalizing digital repression. More directly, Beijing's own media influence include exercising control over diaspora media, engaging in disinformation campaigns in Taiwan, but also the Philippines, and using control over digital television networks built by Chinese firms in Cambodia to provide advantageous access to Chinese state television. As China-based social media platforms and news aggregators grow in popularity in the region, the vulnerability of users to manipulation from Beijing intensifies. In addition, a recent study found that at least 11 countries in Asia had signed smart city or safe city project agreements with Chinese vendors since 2013. Almost all are rated partly free or not free by Freedom House, hiding the likelihood that such surveillance technology could be used against political opponents and civic activists. Still, when considering Beijing's influence on human rights and freedom of expression in Asia, in many instances, the most pernicious effects can be how PRC-based actors strengthen local illiberal actors, pressing on the scales to tilt the balance in a more authoritarian direction. But the news is not all bad and the future of freedom of expression in Asia is very much contested. Alongside the worst abusers of media and internet freedom, Asia is also home to some of the world's freest press and internet freedom landscapes, including Japan and Taiwan. Moreover, throughout the region, journalists, independent news outlets, civil society groups, and also judges are playing a critical role in defending free expression. Looking ahead, politically sensitive contests could trigger new threats domestic and foreign, including elections in the Philippines and local elections in Taiwan, and of course China's own 20th Party Congress in November where Xi Jinping will seek a controversial third term. Russia's invasion of Ukraine will also have reverberations. Even indirect effects due to problems in the global economy could drive street protests and in response government crackdowns. In China, although the regime has superficially claimed neutrality, its state media have been feeding local audiences pro-Russian propaganda and disinformation, including virulently anti-American narratives, while aggressively censoring content departing from the official party line. In terms of recommendations, the U.S. government should, one, consistently address threats to free expression and urge release of imprisoned journalists as part of high-level bilateral engagement, including in democracies and with allies, two, Focus funding for free expression on efforts that will sustain operations, evade censorship, support legal advocacy, and address political crises. And three, Congress should reauthorize the Global Magnitsky Act, with language that codifies the serious human rights abuse standard. Congress should also adopt legislation creating an emergency visa for journalists, as bills like the International Press Freedom Act would do. In our work at Freedom House, we see firsthand how steps like this can have a real-world impact. I would like to conclude with a comment that actually one of our readers of the China media bulletin um, Inside China shared in a survey. Quote, I am a lower class worker in Chinese society and I don't speak English. An independent Chinese media like you that does in-depth reports about the situation in China gives me a better understanding of China's current situation and future development. China is the largest authoritarian country in the world. The Chinese Communist Party oppresses its citizens blocks information flows, and also threatens the existing world order. I think the flow of information and freedom of speech are very important to China's future development. Birds in cages long to fly. Even if we can't fly out now, hearing the chirping of birds outside can still give us hope and faith. End quote. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Miss Cook, uh, very much. Thanks to each of our witnesses. Now we're going to move to... Uh, the question, period. And let me begin by, uh, first of all, congratulating uh, you, Ms. Ressa, and uh, you, Ms. Sue, for your courage. Um, We talk a lot in this body about standing up to repression. Um, That's been your lives. That's what you've been doing. And we very much uh, are in awe of the lives you've lived and the fights that you have been willing to engage in to protect freedom in not just your homelands, but uh, across the whole planet. So we thank you for that. We begin, Mr. Esser, with the numbers. These numbers are staggering. We've heard the statistics about the 22 journalists and 63 lawyers killed since President Duterte took office in 2016. Each of these uh, numbers represents um, people who you have known people who you've worked with, uh, and you have lived in this atmosphere of intimidation um, that you have resisted to the extent to which you won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. Can you talk about the personal uh, impact all of these murders have had on you uh, and your colleagues in trying to bring the truth to the Philippine people?
1: First of all, thank you again, thank you so much for listening. I think that is the first, that we're not alone. That's also something that the Nobel Committee helped uh, uh, bring, not just to journalists in the Philippines, but to journalists all around the world, uh, because this kind of sustained attacks that we have gone through globally in the last decade uh, is unprecedented. it's actually now 66 lawyers killed since, um, since last year. I mean, since under the Duterte administration instead of 63. Senator Markey, Senator Romney, sometimes we've hit new lows in terms of expectations and new normals in, in terms of violence. Uh, in 2016, I just remember every night, being shocked that there would be another body dumped on the sidewalk, the face masked in tape. And, you know, it got to a point where by the end of 2016, moving into 2017, the Amnesty International report that came out that year, um, where there was an average of 33 people killed every night, every day. Our one team... Was we only had one team that would go out overnight and they would come back with at least eight dead bodies. That was when I began to realize something has fundamentally changed. And then when that became a new normal, and by 2017, the numbers changed in plain sight. Uh, The Philippine police changed the almost 7,000 people killed to back to 2,000 in plain sight. And, and they just changed it and atomized it. So these numbers sometimes don't hold any meaning. Um, I just feel for me it is, I'm at the tail end of my career. And I feel like this moment is extremely important. It is the reason why Rappler was set up. And so what we did is we worked with our communities And we wouldn't have been able to do this without our communities, both financially and and spirit-wise. I think that's that's part of the reason the solution really has to be with communities. How do we bring democratic norms back to a more robust place? It has to be with the will of the people. And what we have learned from our communities is that they want us to hold the line. And they're prepared now to do that with us.
0: Great, thank you. Senator Gardner uh, and I, back uh, three years ago, we were able to pass the uh, Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, which actually resulted in an appropriation of $210 million a year uh, for five years from 2019 through 2023 to encourage um, democratic institutions uh, to encourage human rights, transparency, accountability in the private and public sectors all across Asia. Um, we're right now in the process of negotiating an extension of that on the com- on the committee. It was about a billion dollars that we were able to put in back five years ago, and it's a it's a way of thinking of Asia where we're we're in the game. The United States is helping to support those uh, very important institutions. Um, where, in your opinion, Ms. Russell, would the United States be making the best investments uh, uh, with, um, with those hundreds of millions of dollars over the next five years, um, perhaps to support independent media, to support other institutions that you think are vital uh, to ensuring that independent voices, voices advocating for freedom are heard?
1: Thank you for asking, Senator Markey. I, you know, uh, the in- independent um, fund for... Ah. if PIM, the International Fund for for uh, um, Public Media, was set up precisely to try to get uh, the 0.3% of ODA assistance, up to at least 1%, and to get some of that for independent media. Part of the problem that we have is that the business model of journalism has collapsed. Advertising is essentially dead. And the platforms that have been used to attack the credibility of traditional news groups, news groups that stand by, that have processes editorially that stick to the facts, um, these news groups now are under attack, and no place knows this better than the global south, than Asia. Um, so that's part of our goal. I, I do believe, I see this now, independent media needs help to survive this time period, but hand-in-hand hand with that as well is, uh, is putting guardrails on technology because it's impossible for us to do our jobs if we cannot even get the, the news distributed to our consumers. Other, other things are institutions. You know, the institutions in Southeast Asia, for example, that have, in, in the Philippines, within six months of, of the new administration, of the Duterte administration, we watched many institutions fold. So very, very strong executive. How do we revitalize that?
0: Can you talk a little bit about Facebook in the Philippines?
1: Yes, sir. Uh, Up until January this year, the Philippines, for six years in a row, uh, Filipinos spent the most time online and on social media globally. Uh, This is from Hootsuite, and we are social, that's statistics. Um, For many, many years, even during the time of Yahoo, any new digital product was first tested in the Philippines, products that are meant for the West. And in 2018, when I interviewed the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower, Christopher Wiley, he called the Philippines the Petri dish because he said this is where Cambridge Analytica and its parent partner, SCL, Tested these tactics of mass manipulation, and if they worked in the Philippines, then they would. The word he used was "port" these tactics over to you. So we were the guinea pigs; you were the targets. Um, social media is, uh, I think, an extension of how Philip, our institutions are weaker, and so what wound up happening is uh, it has to be someone you know to get things done. Uh, before we were the social media capital of the world, we were the texting, the SMS capital of the world. It, it helped in, in uh, protests that were organized against President Arroyo in, uh, in when she had taken office, right? Texting capital of the world. Um, this social networking can be a boon and can be a curse. And for a period of time, it was a blessing. This is why I started Rappler on Facebook. Um, but at a certain point by 2015, when instant articles was introduced, uh, the same algorithms of amplification weren't changed, and news went into this in, in system where you can't, dis- it, the system actually doesn't distinguish between fact and fiction, and it literally rewards lies laced with anger and hate over facts. So that's our biggest problem right now as journalists.
0: Thank you. Um, Senator Romney.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate the chance to hear from you and your testimony is quite moving um, and disturbing. Uh, and And I will not be able to stay with you long. Uh, I came late, I have to leave early, but I, I do want to ask a couple of questions. First, I'll ask Ms. Sue, could you give me a sense of, uh, to what extent do the people of Hong Kong uh, understand what's happening uh, among them, uh, what's happening in Hong Kong? Do they have access to to uh, to truth, or has that been cut off for them in the same way it's been cut off in uh, in the rest of China?
2: Thank you, Senator Rongmi, for your question. So, As I have mentioned in my testimony, the national security law was passed by the Chinese government and it it came into effect in Hong Kong on July 1st, 2020. And that really changed the lives of Hong Kong people, and that really imposed a very, very tight restrictions in terms of our access to uh, internet, to information, and that imposed a very tight restriction in regards to our freedom of expression. So under the national security law, any permanent Hong Kong resident or actually any foreign person who are considered to have committed crimes under the names of subversion, secession, terrorism, and collusion of foreign forces, could face up to lifetime imprisonment in Hong Kong. And since the implementation of the national security law, we have saw that over 150 people in Hong Kong have been arrested. And that includes not just pro-democracy activists or high profile politicians, but then really journalists, media persons, as well as academics and also uh, students or speech speech therapists who have been participating in our pro-democracy movement. And, 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 the and, implementation- but do the,
3: do the people of Hong Kong, do they still have access to information and to truth or is it really by virtue of these changes you've described, uh, has it really been shut off? Do they no longer have access to uh, information?
2: Our assets is very limited right now. So since the implementation of the national security law, we have saw that almost all of our independent pro-democracy media outlets in Hong Kong, including Apple Daily, Stand News, have been forcibly shut down. And as I I have mentioned that fearing the date back charges, all these medias, when they are shutting down, they have to erase their online presence. They have to delete the previous articles and reportings that they have made, or else they will will still be put at the risk of being charged under the national security law. And aside from that, we are also finding that the access to internet and also online information is going to be very limited in Hong Kong. So since May 2021, we have found that uh, several pro democracy websites are being blocked in Hong Kong. And last month, our organization's website was also being blocked in Hong Kong. And on top of that, we have received a letter from the Hong Kong Police Department asking us to remove our content regarding our campaigns on free political prisoners and asking for international of sanctions against Chinese and also Hong Kong officials to be, re- to be removed. So thank that really illustrates the picture.
3: Thank you. Uh, Ms. Ressa, thank you for uh, your participation and your courage. And, and I, I'm interested in the same question, which is, to what extent do the people of the Philippines understand what's going on? Are they angry at the uh, repression of the media they're seeing? Uh, uh, do they have access to truth or or are they uh, blindly going along with uh, with what's happening and not paying much attention to it.
1: Thank you, Senator Romney. Uh, I think in the beginning, in 2016, what we saw was a gradual polarization of our society. Uh, and it, it was a very simple thing because we're, we spent so much time on Facebook, right? Um, and, and what happened was that one algorithm, how... Uh, how you grow your network, friends of friends. That algorithm essentially meant that in 2016, while we all agreed on the facts, if you're pro-Duterte, you moved further right. And then if you're anti-Duterte, friends of friends meant you moved further left, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. So this is where we are. Our society's been polarized, and in the beginning, in 2016, up until I would say this year, fear played a factor. Um, the kind of exponential where free speech was being used to stifle free speech, attacking exponentially somebody who who would criticize the drug war, for example. Those were the first citizens attacked on social media. There, they it became people were afraid, and it became silent. And then we went through six years. Now we're, we're right before elections, 40 days before elections, and it's extremely chaotic in the Philippines. People are finding their voices. Um, I think this is why it's leading to an existential moment. Do people know what's happening? Yes. The battle for democracy can be won in our country. And, you know, I have not stopped speaking. We have not, our communities have Move forward, but again, until we can have until we can actually reach people until the lies, the virus of lies, this is what I started calling it before the pandemic began. Um, if this virus of lies infects real people, and it is much harder to cure real people than it is to actually stop the infection. <laughs>
3: Thank you very much. Uh, finally, Miss Cook, uh, I'm interested in your, your perception on uh, how effective we can be in getting truth to some of these people in these nations. Uh, I, uh, I, you know, when I hear Radio Free Europe, I think, do people still listen to the radio anymore? uh, is, is uh, do we have better uh, techniques? Uh, I, I, your suggestion, your first suggestion, which is that in our discussions with other nations that in addition to the human rights on our agenda, we should talk about uh, communication rights and information rights, uh, as a vital human right. But, but I, um, I, I wonder, do we need to change the way we're, we're communicating with the world and change the way we're, we're trying to get truth to the people of the world, where there is repression of their vehicles of expression?
4: So I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Radio Free Asia and Radio Free Europe are no longer just on the radio. And I think you do see, you know, some really um, critical ways, especially using circumvention tool technologies and other avenues to get information to people inside China. Even in places like China, like there are actually a lot of people with illegal satellite dishes that will listen to dissident satellite TV stations, will try to will try to access BBC in Chinese. So I think you do see situations where people are able to access uncensored news. It's just very hard. And so I think they need more and more, um, you know, th- there's just many more barriers. Um, but you do see that supply still does, sorry, demand I think outstrips supply. And so, especially in terms of on the technological side, trying to find ways to help people in places where information is blocked, get access to that. But honestly, like there's also all kinds of other avenues of supporting, for example, Hong Kong media to preserve and revive the content that they've had to delete in Hong Kong. Is some of it saved? Can they revive it outside so people can access it? Because in Hong Kong, for example, there isn't a full great firewall just yet. We're starting to see inklings of it but it's not to the level of mainland China. And so I I think that's so vitally important. Um, I think we just shouldn't underestimate the demand for information in different countries, as well as uh, the creativity uh, that people have, civil society groups, digital um, activists, even traditional media, in using a variety of platforms to reach users. On the other hand, we shouldn't underestimate how uh, creative the Chinese Communist Party state media can be as well because they're becoming more effective at using global social media platforms as well um, and to manipulate those. So it's it's definitely, you know, a two-sided battle there.
3: Thank you much. Uh Senator Markey and I both have to go vote, uh, and so we're going to take a recess for a moment. Uh, as, soon, as soon as he gets back, and he's already gone, he'll come back, and uh, I'll run off and vote now. He will be back and continue the uh, the conversation. So you you all can take a break for a moment here, and we'll uh, uh, we'll resume in just a moment. Thank you.
0: We'll uh, come to order. Um, we apologize. Uh, a roll call went off while we were in the middle of the hearing, which required Senator Romney and I to uh, go over to uh, cast our vote um, but let me let me continue and uh, mr. Esser, voting is a vital way to hold government accountable as you know've been I have personally been banned from the Philippines uh, for speaking out in support of those who have shown a light on the duterte government abuses like you and uh, Senator de Lima uh, who is still unjustly detained. As you mentioned in your testimony, the Philippines has elections for president and vice president in May. What are the prospects for a return by the new Philippines government to a respect for human rights and freedom of expression post-election?
1: Senator Markey, you know firsthand the cost of free speech. Um, So it's hard to respond to that question because uh, it's unclear exactly what kind of president the front runner would be, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. He is the front runner in statistical surveys. What's also unclear is whether that will translate to real votes. But what we do know so far is that he has refused to do any of the debates that are uh, that are with traditional news organizations. We have seen the growth of of. Uh, SMNI which is a group that's connected with uh, pastor Kiboloy um, the one that just got a franchise I referenced um, and Lenny Robredo the second the woman who is it's almost like we're back in 1986 we have a Marcos against a widow vice president Lenny Robredo comes up is is the is is right behind but very far behind in, in the statistical survey so um, Filipinos, I believe, are hoping for a return to that. But we're at a point where the millions of tens of millions who have lost their jobs, uh, the COVID responses that haven't uh, got gotten vaccines to every Filipino. We're talking about a 60% plus uh, vaccination rate in the Philippines. So we're, there's still a lot of work to be done. It, Literally, we don't know what will happen next. But I think what I'm trying to say is that I still have significant hope that we will be able to go back to a robust democratic system if the right steps are taken now.
0: Mr. Ressa, you have uh, spoken about the Duterte government's use of lawfare to target you and other journalists in the Philippines. Around the region, are you seeing an increase in government's attempts to use the legal system to stifle free speech and the media?
1: Yes, absolutely. You're seeing the number of people arrested. Uh, Myanmar, for example, uh, we're watching very closely with great alarm, and I think part of the reason we use the phrase, hold the line, is that you don't want to step off the line, because the minute you do, states come in and take your freedoms away. Um, Senator Markey, if I could just add something on, on the role of disinformation in all of this. This lays the groundwork for lawfare. Um, Senator Romney earlier asked, you know, do people know what's happening? They do to a degree, but the way they interpret what is happening is dependent on the disinformation or the lack of it. The echo chambers, it's not a robust democracy in the sense that you don't have, you cannot have the public debate that's necessary for a democracy because we have been so, so polarized. So I go back to how can we do it? I think we're still at a point where we can restore uh, that public sphere, but it requires your help. Thank you.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, Ms. Cook, uh, in your 2021 report published by the National Endowment for Democracy, you found that Taiwan had reduced its vulnerability to PRC state-linked disinformation campaigns during Taiwan's January 2020 general elections. How was Taiwan able to successfully counter PRC disinformation efforts? Uh, Learning from Taiwan's example, What can the United States do to help counter disinformation from China uh, throughout uh, the remainder of Asia?
4: Um, It's really so encouraging and incredible to see what came together in Taiwan. And it was very much a multi-sector and multi-stakeholder effort. So you had the government on the one hand trying to put out certain information, but absolutely civil society and also the technology sector as well. So you've had increased monitoring and some really sophisticated uh, use of uh, detection and machine learning by civil society groups to identify these kind of telltale signs of particular narratives, differences in character, other ties back to China, content farms in Malaysia as well. Um, And then even working with technology companies, not only American ones, but for example, Line, Um, which is widely used and creating a feature where people could actually enter into their conversations like a little fact-checking bot. So kind of using bots for good um, that would tie to a fact-checking civil society group. So I think it was very much like a multi-layered effort and very strategic uh, in terms of really getting into those avenues in the information node um, where the disinformation was spreading. It was also media literacy and i think what was really important is that it's been media literacy not only targeted at children because we see that in a lot of countries in terms of through the educational system and that's obviously very important but also to the older generation so trying to find ways of reaching um member you know more older members of society who are maybe not as digitally literate and giving them a better awareness of disinformation and how these things work. No, um, so I think that was that was a lot of it. And no, there's a lot that you. others in Asia can learn from Taiwan.
0: No, thank you, I appreciate it. Ms. Sue. Taiwan, can you talk about that for a second and what, what should the United States be doing in order to ensure that there is full um, and fair uh, dissemination of information in Taiwan, given what the PRC might attempt to do?
2: Thank you, Senator Markey, for the question. So I think from seeing how the PRC government has transformed Hong Kong as an international financial center with a rather independent judiciary system and also the pro, uh, the basic protections of freedom and also rights with our people's access to free information and internet, I think we have witnessed how capable the PRC government is into turning uh, a rather democratic place, a democratic city or region, into a country or a region controlled completely by the PRC. And I think it is a very important lesson to be learned from the experience of Hong Kong that the United States and other democratic governments have to take steps right now and to take concrete steps into protecting the freedom of expression in countries like Taiwan and Japan, and to provide assistance to extend our support to the media agencies in these relevant uh, countries and regions to also cover, to provide and ensure a continuous and timely coverage of incidents and developments in our press Regions like Hong Kong, Tibet, and East Turkestan.
0: Thank you. Um, and uh, again, thank you for your great answers. Thank you to each and every one of you for your tremendous uh, work in this area. This uh, subcommittee is going to continue to work uh, to shine a spotlight, but using your lives, using your work in order to uh, accomplish that goal um, so that uh, repression, uh, compromise of freedom, of free speech, of the press, or ever may exist, will receive the attention of this subcommittee. So we thank you for that. And if there are no more questions, I will close today's hearing. And to our witnesses, thank you for your testimony. To the members of the committee, the record will stay open, and you will have until the close of business on Friday, April 1st, uh, to revise and extend your remarks and submit questions for the record to our witnesses. And we would ask our uh, witnesses to respond to those questions in a timely fashion. Uh, so this um, um, uh, this hearing of the Asia subcommittee is now completed. Uh, and with that,
1: uh, we stand in adjournment.